Hey everyone, welcome to Dev Educate. I'm Kamran Ayub. Today I'm joined by Dylan Beatty. Dylan, welcome to the show. Hello, how you doing? I'm doing super well and I'm really excited for you to be here. For folks who are hearing you for the first time, do you mind sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? I guess the best summary of what I do is the, the one-liner intro I have on my website, which says, Dylan does interesting things with computers, code, music, video, and comedy, and then travels around the world telling people about it. Just a little uh, bit of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So my background, you know, I started out as a, as a developer. So I was one of those, the, the generation of kids who had a, mine was an Amstrad 128, 6128, when I was about seven years old, that I started uh, trying to, first of all, get it to play the games that came in the box, and then was like, I'm sure I can write better games than this. It turns out I couldn't, but that sort of hubris has never quite gone away. Uh, and then got involved in the web very, very early on, just through a kind of, you know, stroke of luck. Wrote my first web page in 1992 when I was doing some work experience. It'd be nice to say that I never looked back, but actually I went, okay, that's the web. And then I went and got into mountain biking and guitars for a couple of years. And, and then eventually came back to, came back to technology when I, I realized that pure mathematics was perhaps not the career Jeff Goldblum made it look like in the movie Jurassic Park. And yes, I've been doing web and distributed systems development, and mainly the Microsoft stack. So I started out in classic ASP back in the day, Access 97, mm, good times. they turned this database into a website button that you, you designed your website and then you pushed the button and it gave you a folder full of stuff that you could run on Microsoft front page server extensions or something called IIS, which I'd never heard of. And, you know, I just kind of dived straight. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know very much about any of it. And I just sort of, you know, started hacking things around, figuring out how that works. That's how I got into doing data-driven web development. And then that's when I graduated in 2000, that was very much in demand. So I, I did that for a living for a couple of years and got headhunted to, to come up to London, be a sort of. This is back in the days when webmaster was still a job title. So I, I had webmaster on my business cards for a while. And yeah, the team grew, the systems grew, got to grips with message passing, upgraded stuff to .NET, uh, started learning how, you know, in service bus and MSMQ and rabbit and uh, CQRS, all these kinds of things work. And yeah, sort of never looked back really. That That's my sort of professional side. And then. Alongside that, I've spent my whole life going, that looks like fun. I wonder if I can do it. I wonder if I can get a computer to do it. <laughs> I think that kind of leads us on what we're talking about today. So yes, yes, exactly. And it's really funny because I, I also started doing, I started with classic ASP and well, even before that, just like you said, I did one of my first sites was a Microsoft front page site and it was to be able to host my Pokemon ROM so that I could download them when I was at my grandma's house. So. <laughs> yeah um, I mean, it's really funny what you say but you know a lot of people you know both in we were talking a moment ago before we started recording about about music and playing the guitar and you know you just mentioned one of your first sites was pokemon roms and the contrast that i see in all kinds of endeavors you know programming music all kinds of things there are people who want to solve a problem or they just they have a specific thing that they want to do and then there are people who have this kind of nebulous you know, it's like, I want to build a website for my Pokemon ROMs versus someone going, oh, I want to be a web developer. And it's like, well, the web developer is a journey that you'll go on your whole life and you'll die still not knowing 90% of what you probably think you should have learned. <laughs> Give up, you know, you're never going to get to a point and go, that's it. 
I have now achieved complete web development enlightenment. Not going to happen. Never going to happen. There are too many goalposts. They're all moving all the time. But if you're like, I want to do this. I want to build a website for my Pokemon ROMs. I want to build a, a website so that I can tell people where my band is playing. I want to build a, a website where I can put up videos of stuff I'm working on. You know, those kinds of, of tangible things where you care about the outcome as well as the technology. Those to me are, those are kind of the stepping stones on the journey of people who end up being, you know, successful, but also people who enjoy what they do, which is, you know, maybe a, one angle on a, a definition of success is, well, you know, were you miserable the whole time you were making your millions? Because if you were, then the millions probably weren't really worth it. Well, so how did you, on this journey, how did you get started doing, well, music in general, but then how did you transition into doing music for programming? The industry kind of caught up. Uh, you know, when I when I first started, so in the late 80s, when I first started playing around on, on PCs and stuff, you know, the first... PC computer I had was a 286 and it didn't have a sound card. So you could make it go beep. And if you were really ambitious, you could make it go beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and that was it. You know, and you're like, all right, I think I have exhausted the musical possibilities of this device. And there were, there were actually a couple of demos. I remember that managed to get a wavetable synthesis or sampled FM out of a PC speaker. I have no idea how they did it. Still have no idea how that, that worked. But the sort of state of the art for PC audio was beep, 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 or you had to go out and buy a, an ad lib or a sound blaster card. So there was sort of, you know, the, there was computer music, but, uh, you know, the state of the art back then was very, very much computer music sounded like computer music, you know, it sounded like chip tunes. And then you had things like the Korg M1, which was one of the sort of pioneering mainstream synthesizers, but that was all still very specialist. And then the Atari ST, we had one of those I studied music production and, and engineering at Sixth Form College, which in the UK is two years from age 16 to 18 before you go to university. Mm. And they had an Atari ST there, which had a MIDI port. And so this thing plus a core, you know, workstation keyboard controller with a synthesizer in it, something that's like, I can make songs that actually sound like real songs. Like they don't sound uh, like, I don't, don't upset the electronic music crowd out there, but I can make songs that sound acoustic, like pianos and uh, you know, drums and that kind of stuff. record guitar on top of it mm -hmm. and that was okay this is interesting because it started bringing elements of a a non-linear workflow that i had always taken for granted in composing text you know programs writing essays all those kinds of things like well of course you can move this paragraph over there and you can edit this and you can take that make this longer make that shorter you know complete non-linear you can jump in at any point in the work and go i want to move this piece to there and when music was still on analog tape, that was very, very difficult because there would, you know, you had to literally, you'd see footage of people in the seventies, they are cutting tape with razor blades and they are splicing it together with adhesive tape, mm -hmm. because that is how you edited songs and music and, and cut pieces of, of stuff together. And, uh, so MIDI was the first kind of, you know, MIDI with a decent synthesizer module meant you could 
you could make stuff and you still had to record it onto cassette so you could play it to anyone else. That was what I loved about it is you had the state of the art technology. And then when you were finished, you put a blank tape, like a cassette tape in the machine. And then you pushed play on the Atari ST at just the right moment. And that would give you your, you know, your cassette that you could then take and play in your Walkman or, or play to your friends and, and that kind of stuff. Wow. And so that sort of set me onto that. And the, the next sort of milestone, uh, would have been probably Cakewalk and Cakewalk with the AWS, not the AWS, uh, Creative Labs, AWE, uh, 64 sound card, which meant I could plug a guitar into the computer and I could use it like a recorder. Like I could actually record guitar and it would almost keep up with real time. Mm. You know, the whole story of digital audio recording has always been a, a question of latency <laughs> and, you know, how can the computer record fast enough? Cause you know, if it stops, it goes, oh, hang on a second. I'm running a garbage collection cycle. You're like, well, no, this is music. We don't stop for a second. We keep going. And if you don't keep going, the take is ruined and we'll have to do it again. And you know, various points got a point to where I had a Windows system, you know, Windows 2000 with this particular sound card and cakewalk and then sonar running. And sometimes it would be stable enough that I could use it for music production. But the number of weekends I've had where the plan was to make some music and actually what I ended up doing was uninstalling and reinstalling these drivers and those drivers and playing around with the ASIO settings and buffer samples. And, uh, and then I got a Mac, uh, probably going back, what is 12 years ago now? The first time I owned a Mac and it's like, Hey, you just plug the guitar in and it works and that's it. And I don't think I've ever had to uninstall or reinstall an audio driver on any piece of, of Mac equipment that I've, I've owned. <laughs> and so, you know, in, in that sense, I was trying to do this the whole time. Like, I just want to record music and play it back and see what it sounds like and play around with it. And it took, you know, 30 years for the state of technology to get to the point where, yeah, you can go into the Apple store and you can spend a thousand, well, $1,500 pounds, whatever. And come home with something that has more power than Abbey Road Studios did in the 1960s. You know, 64 tracks of audio effects, production, samples, synthesis, all this stuff is just there in the box. And that, that is amazing. You know, as a, a creative performer that basically removes all of the constraints. And then you just have to sit down and realize that the piece that sucks now is you because <laughs> you can't blame it anymore on, ah, oh, if I had a multi-track tape, ah, oh, if I had an effects, if I had a reverb unit. Ah, oh, if I just had one of these guitar amplifiers and it's like, no, you, you have all that we've simulated and synthesized every single piece of equipment you can imagine. Now it's just you and your limitless imagination, which turns out to be not as limitless as maybe you thought it was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, that, but you know, that's a fairly, I think, familiar story for a lot of, a lot of folks that worked or dabbled in, in music production. Cause for me, it's always been a hobby. And when I was about 16 years old, I had a, the best career advice I've ever had as a, a guy called Rob, uh, who can't remember his surname, but Rob taught studio engineering. He's one of the, the people who taught me how to use a mixing desk and that kind of stuff. And he said, you know, you can do guitars for a living and you'll never have enough money for a computer, or you can do computers for a living and you can buy as many guitars as you want. <laughs> and he was absolutely spot on. And you know, here I am 11 guitars later going, yeah, that was good advice. And you know, the other, the other thing he said that really stuck with me is, you know, you, you can play the guitar and you can love it. And then one day, if you do it for a living, one day, you're going to have to pick it up and take it to work. And cause you've got bills to pay. And this, the day that you play the guitar for money, when you don't want to play it is the day you start to hate it. Mm -hmm. And once you start to hate it, you will never get it back. Mm -hmm.
And, you know, I, who knows? I, I know folks out there who are, you know, pro and semi-pro musicians who still have good days and bad days like anyone else does. I've very, very seldom have I picked up a guitar for any reason other than I wanted to, and it was going to be fun. So, you know, uh, so that's the musical side. But then uh, there's this sort of other weird side of creating, uh, using music as a medium to create things for a niche audience. Because, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. developers are very much... Do we, do we still, is the word tribe still acceptable in this context? I remember reading a bunch of essays about this idea of, you know, sort of global tribalism and how the internet means anyone can talk to anyone. And so actually what you do is you find the people who think like you do and have shared experience and get excited about the same things you get excited about. That's, so, yeah, you know, that, yeah. that's, that, that's my niche. That, that's kind of my, those are the people who, who laugh at my jokes. Mm -hmm. And so I started dabbling around with the idea of parody songs and, you know, like, I think like any truly kind of audacious project, it doesn't start with a master plan. It starts with one tiny little thing. And in this, in this particular instance, you know, I, I been playing in bands and stuff since I was a kid and I was like 16 years old and I used to entertain my friends by writing parodies of songs and playing them on acoustic guitar at parties and, you know, making fun of my friends and I and the things we did and, uh, kind of, I enjoyed doing that, like taking well-known lyrics and, and reworking them to be about, you know, whatever is, is going on, something you and, and the rest of your, your crew find funny, but that that's good fun. And I was doing a comedy panel show at a conference with a friend of mine, a guy called Mark Rendell, who does, you know, .NET and consultancy. But Mark also, he used to be a professional stand-up comedian. He and I have done a bunch of fun stuff together over the years, and, and he's in the conference band as well. And we'd had a round in this quiz where uh, we, we said to the contestants, we're going to show you a word, and you've got to tell us, is this a, a web development framework, or is it a character from the Transformers <laughs> franchise? And which is harder than you think, because when you dig deep, there's a lot of web frameworks and there's a lot of transformers and you've never heard of 90% of either of them. Mm -hmm. And so we dug into that and that was kind of fun. And then we have another round where we would show a tweet. And back in the days when Twitter was a fun thing that you could use without feeling bad. And we'd show a tweet and we'd, the audience just had to say, was this tweet a bot or was it a real person? And there, there was, and I think maybe still is a Twitter bot. Let me see if it's still out there called, we didn't start it, which, um, is a Twitter bot that will put together trending headlines. No, apparently it's gone, but what it'll do is it'll take trending headlines from Google news and analyze the, the meter, like the, the rhythm of those headlines and try and come up with new lines to, we didn't start the fire by Billy Joel, oh, nice. which is just fun. You know? <laughs> And Mark said to me afterwards, do you think there's enough JavaScript frameworks that you could write, we didn't start the fire to be about JavaScript frameworks? Mm -hmm. And of course I'm like, I maybe, I don't know. And so I got up the Wikipedia page with all the software development frameworks. And I just started going through and thinking, first of all, let's find all the ones that rhyme. And so I'm going through and looking, okay, so we got, we got a bunch of things. We got Kendo. We've got PRADO, we've got Webflow, we've got Specflow, we've got, okay, so we got a lot of rhyming O's. Mm, we got Maverick Tapestry, Maverick and JSP, so Tapestry, JSP. And kind of just started pairing these things up and then going through the original song and working out what fit where and coming up with a, uh, a couple of, like the original song has the line JFK blown away. 
And I'm like, well, what if instead of the the JFK, it was the JDK? <laughs> and then drop that in and, well, Google Web, Web Toolkit, no need to learn JavaScript, JDK, code away, what else do I have to say? And it sort of worked. Google Web Toolkit, no need to learn JavaScript, JDK, code away, what else do I have to say? So I, I, I started, I have a set of lyrics for this thing. And then it's like, right, now I've got a set of lyrics. What am I going to do with it? Well, I suppose I should try and record it. And so I found uh, there's a company that sells commercial backing tracks that you can use for live performance and stuff. So it's called a karaokeversions.co.uk. And they are fantastic because for two pounds, you can get the isolated instrument parts guests have a bunch of musicians who go in the studio and they recreate all these songs for doing karaoke tracks and stuff but you can you can buy the tracks to use in like you know little performances private performances and stuff and they've just added a thing now where you can pay money for license so you can use them on streams and youtube videos oh, and, nice. and those kinds of things yeah that's perfect yeah i mean licensing around parodies is a, a, a thing i've never really kind of looked into very much mm. my Philosophy has always been, as long as I'm not making any money out of it, then anyone who wants 50% can have it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I think if it's it's the kind of thing, if it was making a lot of money, people would come after it because they want some. So anyway, I got got all these backing tracks and recorded a lyric over the top of it and put that on SoundCloud and nobody cared and nobody listened. And then he said, you need to make videos because people, the, the lyrics are too fast to get the jokes. So I made the first video, which was literally a Camtasia screen recording with me whacking a space bar and a PowerPoint presentation to get words to appear on time with the beat. <laughs> so bang, 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 bang. And if you, if you watch that video, you can see exactly that that's how it was made. Cause I didn't know any, anything else. I knew how to do screen recording and I knew how to do PowerPoint. And so I made that one and put that up on YouTube. And then I think the, the, the dev.to podcast, sorry, Twitter feed kind of picked it up and they put it on Twitter and it went viral and it got like a couple of thousand views. The thing about going viral is that when it's an order of magnitude bigger than you've ever had before, you're like, yeah, this is amazing. I love it. Look at all the validation <laughs> and your brain is just going refresh, refresh, refresh. And, and of course, you know, once you've had a thousand, the next time you get a thousand, you're like, ah, oh, nah, no big deal. And then you get 10,000, you're like, ah, oh, this is good. And then next time you get 10,000, it's like, eh, big deal. I've had this. <laughs> and then maybe you get. Yeah, chasing the, the, the dopamine hit of going viral and getting all of those likes and things. Not a great way to motivate a sustainable career, but it's, it's a lot of fun when it happens. And then, uh, yeah, that one turned into a YouTube video that I then performed live at PopConf in Oslo, which is, you never heard of it, PopConf is a guy called Todd Gardner runs that. And yes, yeah, we had him on the show, first episode. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So yeah, that's Todd. And Todd Todd came up with this idea for PopConf, which is a developer conference in a bar with beer. And basically the original premise was you take a one hour talk and you edit out everything that isn't jokes. So you end up with five minutes of jokes and it's 20 slides, 15 seconds, you know, rapid fire, bang, 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 bang. And PopConf is great fun. And it's a really fun thing to be part of. And then we did this in Oslo and I took my guitar along and the, the framework song live, uh, it was terrible. The quality was appalling. I forgot a lot of my own lyrics. Everyone, including me, had, <laughs> had quite a lot of beer to drink that night. But it's kind of fun. And people said at the end, you should do more songs. And so I did. And now I have a, you know, anyone who's seen the, seen the show, the Line Breakers show that we do at conferences, we have something like two and a half hours of material to choose from now.
That's awesome. Which is all, you know, songs most people know with parody lyrics that are all about software development and technology and all kinds of things. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting process because some of them come out of a very, very specific one line. Like we have a, a Bon Jovi parody, You Give Rest a Bad Name, which kind of came out of this. The, the background for that is this frustration I've always had with, it's not a big deal. Like it's a piney hill to die on, but rest, representational state transfer was described and defined by Roy Fielding in a thesis, which explains very clearly what it is and what is not. It says, you know, if your API is a REST API, it should conform to the following. And some of it is very, very detailed, but a lot of it is just like, you know, use what the web gives you. Don't reinvent the wheel. Like if you've got an API where everything is a post and everything comes back 200, okay. And then you unpack the XML and inside the XML, there's an error message saying that your last request failed. That's not REST because REST kind of says, if it didn't work, you should have an error code at the top of the response. So the thing on the other side doesn't have to go and decrypt and unpack the XML to figure out there was a problem. And so while I was putting together some workshop material, kind of, you know, playing around with these ideas as, as a, cause I teach programming workshops as well. I had this idea. What if instead of you promised me heaven, then put me through hell, you promised me JSON, then sent XML. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, that's oh, yeah, done. That's like, like, and the song just builds itself mm -hmm. around that line. And sometimes, it, you know, the American Pie is just the kind of whole history of software development, because that's a song that lends itself to a very kind of long form. You know, the original is like the history of rock and roll. And then there was weird Al's parody of that, which is the kind of Star Wars saga. And I was like, well, we could do that. The, the history of software development, and, you know, 8-bit PCs, Turbo Pascal, the web, dial-up modems, cloud, agile. So, and that kind of, you know, fits all of that in and, and, and works pretty nicely with that. It's high time we reviewed our design. The code behind our system is just two buys and time. We'll rewrite all the legacy and take it offline. And it's gonna compile first time. It's gonna compile first time. There are always more ideas floating around. Uh, you know, I, I quite often get people ping me and go, Hey, have you had this idea? It's like, yeah, I've had the idea. So trust me, I've had probably every idea you can think of. And the thing is like, you talk about the, the order of magnitude of the effort involved in realizing the idea costs one point, mm -hmm. writing the lyrics is 10 points, making the music is a hundred, making the video to go with it is a thousand. And then getting it to a point where the rest of the band know the material and you're on a stage at a show in another country with the video all queued up and you're ready to go. The idea is not the hard part. Like all this stuff that's going on at the moment with ch chat GPT and it's like, look, it can write lyrics. It's like, yeah, writing lyrics is easy. Right. <laughs> and there are, there are humans who can churn out a hundred set of lyrics in a day and they're all pretty good. You know, any one of them would be a hit if you got Max Martin to produce it and Nile Rodgers to play guitar and, you know, Chemical Brothers to do a remix on it or whatever. 
the lyrics is not the hard part. And, you know, a good lyric is fantastic. It's not to trivialize the, the art of writing them. That mechanical process of taking an idea and making the words rhyme until you have something, uh, that is, that is repetitive. You can sit down with discipline. You can do that. So GPT-3 isn't going to take anyone's jobs anytime soon. Well, I tell you what I want. What I want is an AI that lets the humans write the lyrics and the AI deals with getting the PA speakers out the back of the car <laughs> and getting them into the venue and setting them up and sound checking and balancing. Come back when, you know, GPT-3 and, and chat AI, come back when we have roadie AI. Yes. Because that's yes. actually going to solve a problem, which is a real problem. You know, writing lyrics is not a problem. Writing FizzBuzz in Python, not really a problem. You know, writing the agenda. Have you seen the one where someone on the new chat GPT, they said, write the agenda for a corporate all-hands meeting. <laughs> and you're like, I didn't realize that was something humanity was struggling uh -huh. with. Like, I'm pretty sure we had that one. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Uh, oh, yeah, I've been playing with with chat gpt it's pretty fun and just like you said it can it can create jokes and it can do lyrics and, and everything like that yeah so. well i mean so you've given me i've been rapidly taking notes and uh, <laughs> there's just so much i want to sort of dig into for the audience one thing you mentioned at the beginning was the entertainment and the the funness i guess of mm -hmm. of music and of creating like parodies and uh, one thing that we talked about in the second episode with joe eames was the learning pyramid and how retention increases the farther you go down the pyramid so audio visual is somewhere in between it's it's better than reading it's not as as much as teaching or getting mm -hmm. hands-on but i imagine that like people have you have you seen people like sing the lyrics back to you and and things like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One one recurring uh, sort of phenomenon is maybe too strong a word. I've had many people say to me that I've ruined the original song now because when they get it stuck in their head, they hear <laughs> my words instead of the real ones. And there's actually, there's a, a lovely story along those lines. Don McLean, who wrote American Pie originally, apparently... He had kids, he had young kids who are like eight and 10 years old or something. And this is back in 99 when the first, when Star Wars episode one came out and when Weird Al did The Saga Begins, which was his American Pie parody. And apparently one day, uh, Al Yankovic gets a call at home and he picks up the phone and he says, Mr. Yankovic, this is Don McLean. And he thinks, oh crap, I'm about to get sued. And he says, no, I just thought you should know my kids love your stuff. They've been listening to your new record around the house. And last night I went to play American Pie at the Paris Coliseum and I accidentally sang your words instead of mine. <laughs> I thought you'd like to know that. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, that's funny. But yeah, I've had that. And also there's a, a couple of songs in there where mm, people never knew the original. The only version they know is Line Breakers. Mm. So there's, there's a couple of tracks that my girlfriend particularly, she's like, I never really heard this one. Until you parodied it. And now I know your version, but I don't know the original mm -hmm, version. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, I mean, music is a, as a form, there is something very, very, I guess, primal about music. Right. Like, you know, the alphabet song, A, B, C, yep. E, F, G, which we all learn. And that's how you learn the alphabet. And, you know, there's still, you know, people all over the world who, if you, they have to put something in alphabetical order in their head, they're going. And my, my um, kids are, my kids are young and I see them every day learning songs yeah. in kindergarten and preschool just to learn stuff and remember it. So definitely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And you know, it's 
it's funny because I think there is a some sort of connection between programming and music that uh, maybe explains that. I think there's a high correlation between the two. I think a lot of developers are also musicians and there's something about working with an intangible abstraction. You know, the piece of code, once you've written it down, it's code, but the code is just like a representation of the algorithm translated into a particular dialect that a particular interpreter can understand. And when you kind of really grok the way a program works, you're not thinking of it in terms of statements anymore. You're thinking of it in terms of data structures and relationships and behavior. And you can't see that stuff. Like even the most sophisticated tools that we've come up with as an industry, I think still fall a long way short of actually being able to show you what your program is really doing. And so people develop mental models of the way software works. And, you know, I, I sometimes look at footage of classical composers because I, I can't read or write music. Mm -hmm. I, I can kind of fudge my way through sheet music. I, I play by ear. And, you know, I look at classical composers, they sit and think for a second, and then they got this manuscript paper in front of them. And they're like, okay, so the trumpets and they start drawing on it. Da, 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 and the strings are dip, 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 and timpani. And I'm like, you got all that in your head. And you just kind of are taking this abstraction, this, this thing that's in your head where no one else can ever see it or hear it or, you know, engage with it. And you're like, well, I need to get the thing out of my head and I need to translate it into a set of instructions that can then be executed on the appropriate hardware, which in this case is a symphony orchestra, such that other people will be able to, uh, you know, experience the thing that I get in my own head for free all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about programming that is very reminiscent of that. No, no, come on, look, look, this, this structure goes here and that goes there. And then this function calls that one, but then we have to decrement the stack pointer. And when that happens and in your head, this all makes sense and it's crystal clear, but to get to a point where you can kind of share that experience and that understanding with anybody else, you need to, you know, dumb it down. You need to turn it into something which can be translated into computer language or human language or musical language. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, the, the way that languages evolve and design or, or are designed, you know, machine languages, computer languages, they don't evolve necessarily the way human languages do. And so the, the job of the language designer is what are we missing? What, what has become really common that we don't have a word for yet? And so functions get invented and enumerators get invented and generators get invented and all these kind of things that start off as copy and paste, and then they become a pattern and eventually languages begin supporting them natively. And so I think there's a lot of, a lot of parallels there. And I think there's a certain kind of human brain enjoys working with the, the challenges posed by those abstractions in a, in a, a particular kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. And the music is an abstraction and it's also a simplification in a way to, to communicate a story. Like there's so much yeah. storytelling in music. Just like we, I mean, a pro programming is a story, like to the computer, and I'm in a in a way. You know, one thing I was wondering for the audience who might be within organizations and they're they're thinking right now, this is super cool, but it seems like something that's a hobby. I'm not sure how like how applicable it is to like my organization, but what's going through my head is just like you're saying, where it's. It's if it's a mechanism to communicate something more simply, more clearly, to change people's perception or to change mental models. If you have this product and you're trying to communicate your value proposition, 
I mean, music music is a, a mechanism to do that. It's a medium to do that. But it, it seems like there's going to be quite a bit of like things to think through. Like you mentioned, first first you mentioned like you're the barrier, right? So creating the mm-hmm. music itself. But second of all, there's this whole like licensing thing. And I know that you have done parodies, but I think from a business perspective, if someone was inside of a business, they would probably want to do something like original so that they don't have to deal with all the licensing because it's going to be commercial right? in that case. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole, you know, somebody working inside an enterprise organization, the second you start talking about using music in that context, I got to say my immediate reaction is, is one of, oh no, they're going to write the corporate song <laughs> and everyone's going to have to sing the company song at the company away day. Yeah. And the, Company song will be a, a rousing celebration of our values in D flat major and just no cringe, run away. No, you, you know, don't want um, that. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the music fundamentally has, it has always been something you can do creatively for free. Mm. You know, you pick up an instrument or you just sing, you know, you make up little songs, you sing them to each other. And at some point somebody went, hey, I think we could make money out of that. And the economics of music as a sort of commercial endeavor, uh, as I was saying, you know, a minute ago, you don't need much of a budget now to produce what would be considered a studio quality recording. If you have an idea, it's not like the days when you needed a record company to give you an advance so you could get your band into a studio where an engineer, you know, record the instruments and record the vocals and apply the effects. And then you'd had to get the thing cut into vinyl and you get trucks, you know, you could get a laptop, open it up, open up GarageBand, record a song, stick it on SoundCloud and the rest of the world can hear it today for free. Mm. So the economics of music distribution, and you know, when that was not possible, when the only model we had was trucks full of vinyl, a lot of people got very, very rich over controlling the power structures that existed within that distribution model. A lot of very talented musicians got very, very poor and died penniless because sold 10 million records and still never made enough money to pay the record company back the generous loan that allowed them to get started. But, you know, the within a sort of corporate or commercial environment, one of the things that, that people have said to me is that when you... You get into programming because it's fun, because you enjoy the challenge. And then, you know, when you start doing it professionally, when you get your first development job, there are days when you're like, all right, this is actually okay. And there are days when you're like, oh, this is brilliant. I get paid to do this for fun. And it is very difficult because it's a gradual process to spot the point where you begin burning out Mm -hmm. and you just lose that enthusiasm for it. And, you know, I've talked to quite a lot of people who... They, you know, they're professional developers. They spend 30, 40 hours a week writing code for a job to pay the bills. And when they get home, the last thing they ever want to do is look at another line of code or open <laughs> an editor. Yeah. But then you show them something like, uh, you know, Sonic Pi is a great example of this because Sonic Pi is, is a musical programming platform where the default output of all your programs is music, sounds and rhythms and melodies and tunes. <laughs> You know, and I've seen that 
just kind of punch through somebody's layers of disillusionment and reconnect them with what it was they found inspiring about working with technology in the first place. In fact, for, and, for Sonic Pi, I believe that there there's a conference here in Minnesota. I think it's Twin Cities Code Camp. And I think one of the organizers like basically specializes in creating like that Sonic Pi yeah. music as code, which is pretty cool. And, you know, I mean, Sonic Pi is wonderful because it's incredibly accessible because, you know, it's built to run on a Raspberry Pi. So you can get a, a $10 computer, plug it into your TV, you know, womble an old keyboard from somewhere because everyone has a cupboard full of USB keyboards somewhere and uh, you're up and running and you're making music and you're making melodies. And uh, Sam Aaron, the guy who designed it, was uh, approached to design a programming course for kids and, you know, came up with this idea. He did a podcast with, with Scott Hanselman recently, actually. And he's like, you know, I wanted outputs for this, which people could relate to without having to read them first. You know, I wanted something that was immediate, something where you could tell straight away whether something was pleasing or discordant or, and music is a, is a great way of doing that. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because the, I'd never really thought about music as a, a sort of learning and retention tool for any kind of development. And I don't know if it would work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting. One thing that uh, another common experience to a lot of people is the kind of the memories that are triggered by listening to the music from a computer game. Yes. Uh -huh. And, you know, anyone who's been into gaming at any point will have little snippets of music. For me, uh, it's Deus Ex, mm -hmm. which I was hugely into when the first Deus Ex came, game came out in about, what, in 2000, 2001. And... Uh, you know, if I hear a snippet of any of Alexander Brandon's soundtrack from that game, there's a moment when I'm like, ah, oh, that was an amazing holiday. And then I'm like, that wasn't a holiday. That was a computer game mm -hmm. that you played. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the recall is, is that vivid. And, you know, maybe there's a way of, of engineering that. You know, you pick certain kinds of music and you're like, all right, well, while, while I'm learning, teaching myself Python machine learning, I'm going to listen to Shredwave exclusively. Yeah. And so you make yourself a playlist and then maybe years later, you kind of put one of those, oh, I remember. So um, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, okay, there's so much I want to talk about here because this is a perfect segue because I talk a lot about gamification and game-based learning and, mm -hmm. and I'm a huge gamer. And it, exactly what you said, I I know exactly where I was when I was listening to, you know, Children of Bodom, and I'm hacking mm. and slashing on my, like, uh, working on my side project. I know exactly when that was, yeah. because that's creating this recall. But for, for people, I think for companies that are interested in creating more, like, game-based learning. So I think that this could be apl applicable to more game-based learning types of things like there's a Twilio quest is one example yeah. of game-based learning. And if you have something like that, that's something where you could bring in original music through a composer or something like that. And, and one of my favorite games is Morrowind and I, I love the composer Morrowind and I, I know exactly I can recognize the music from it, but then there's also different options in between there. So one example would be Cassidy Williams, who's a develop, mm -hmm. developer experience director, I believe. And I mean, she, she's going, you know, hopping from startup to startup. She's, she's awesome. She's, and I, I would want to say that she's built her entire developer advocacy sort of platform on these like memes and her just singing to the music or creating. I, I know the ones you songs. mean. Yeah, I, exactly. I think she is one of the only 
I think I follow <laughs> about three people on TikTok, which is a platform I do not use very much at all. But I think I think her and Hanselman are the the only people on there who I actually went, oh, they're doing stuff yes. that is, is relevant to my industry and not a total waste of time. Exactly. So And yeah. the the other example I wanted to bring up is outside of software. Well, not really. It's actually it's part of the gaming industry, which would be a type of software. But outside of, I should say, open source companies and developer education, but I just played Guardians of the Galaxy on my Xbox and mm -hmm. I learned so you start out right away as as Peter and they've changed his backstory a bit so that his name Star-Lord is based on an 80s metal band well that that <laughs> metal band never existed so you know what they did they actually had someone at Ubisoft Montreal um who was an audio engineer and who knew how to play music he actually recorded an entire concept album that was in the style like 80s heavy metal bands and it's called star lord and it's just freaking awesome And I was just, I was just in the game, just sitting on the couch. And I was just listening to the entire album because he has the, he has the the lyrics on the you know, whatever it's called when you get a vinyl. Yeah. Yep. Has the the liner or whatever that has all the lyrics. So I was like reading it as I'm listening to it, and uh, I there's I feel like there's a lot of potential for developer education, not necessarily more the educational part, maybe more the marketing part. But there's yeah. actually a thing that I'm I'm working on at the moment, which is a, a workshop. It's a web development workshop. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to introduce something where I got a chance to talk about localization and time zones and currencies and, you know, all, the, all these kinds of things that I think people need to be aware of when they start figuring out how various kinds of online web apps are going to work. And so... The, the example app that I've come up with is selling tickets for concerts for rock bands going on tour. Mm -hmm. and, you know, at the moment, it's just entries in a database. There's no actual music on that. Uh, but that gets you into, all right, well, you've got a rock band. They're going to go from London. They're going to go London, Birmingham, Glasgow, Stockholm, Helsinki, Tallinn, Porto, Belgrade. And, you know, each one of those, it's like, well, the stage time's probably in a different time zone. You've got different conventions around the currency that the tickets are sold in. How do you format dates and things? And, you know, the two different orthogonal, because one hand you have a, you have a venue where you're like, all right, if we're looking at a list of the forthcoming shows at the Anchor Pub in Stockholm, obviously all of that is going to follow local rules of Swedish orthography and formatting because it's a Swedish venue listing stuff happening in Sweden. Mm -hmm. But then when you have Dev Leopard, who's one of the fictional bands in my <laughs> database, when you have them doing a European tour, you're probably not going to translate every detail of every show into every one of these locales on the same page, because that's not going to make sense. You know, you want the, the page needs to be localized for the consumer, whereas the venue needs to be localized for the producer. And, you know, so that's an example where it's, I think it's a memorable domain. 
like once you start playing around with these examples and stuff and you know i'm gonna be next year doing some more work around this and one of the things i'm gonna be doing is putting in you know logos and i don't know potentially the thing takes off enough that could even be little fake mp3 samples for each of these bands in there but it would have to sell a hell of a lot of workshop tickets to justify the time and recording fake singles and excerpts for 26 fictional bands yeah just yep. as a way of, you know teaching folks how to do web development in .net. that's but it doesn't mean it wouldn't be fun you know yeah exactly well i wanted to ask you about the what you do for going to conferences so you mentioned you alluded to the fact that you either have roadies or you just you're your own roadie like what do you do when you're bringing equipment on the road to these conferences? Uh, i'm my own roadie <laughs> I get up early, I put everything in cases, I swear, I call a lot of taxis. <laughs> For doing international stuff, I have a, a, a very, very stripped down. So I have a, a Steinberger travel guitar, which is small enough that it'll fit in a suitcase or a, a duffel wheelie case that is standard airline baggage. So I put the guitar in there and I got a, a flight case, which has various effects and like the wireless headset and the wireless receivers and stuff. So that all goes in the case. That means the case comes in at like 82 centimeters long and it's about 19.5 kilos. And so I check that in as standard baggage and the laptops and anything with a battery in it goes in the, in the rucksack and that goes in the cabin. And yeah, it's, it's nice to be able to travel lighter than that, but it is a relatively kind of stripped down setup for being able to do live performance and, and live shows. Yeah, that's awesome. And when it's in the UK, the rest of the band <laughs> are like, oh, yeah, just just bring a piano. You know, that's fine. And so I will be outside at six o'clock in the morning getting a taxi into central London with a piano and amplifiers and guitars and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I'm seriously thinking like next year, like at this point, I'm at, how, do you, how do you find roadies? Like, can you just give someone money and they come to your house and get all the equipment and get it into the venue and get it unloaded? And, <laughs> You know, London, where I live, is a nightmare because most of the city, you can't even park. So you're like, you need, you got a taxi outside a venue with its blinkers on, on the double yellow lines while you get everything out of the cab as fast as you can. And then you are stood on the pavement in the rain with 6,000 pounds worth of equipment. And you're like, all right, well, do I leave half of it here while I carry the other half inside? Or do I carry it all two meters at a time? Mm -hmm. So yeah, anyone listening to the podcast who's like doing roadieing as a service, there you go. give me a, give me a, give me a call. We can talk. Yeah, I wonder if, so. I wonder if Fiverr would have anyone to help. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you, so for the concerts that you go to are, this, do you do sets? Like how does, how does that work? Do you do one or two songs? Like what's the structure when you're, when you're playing at a conference? So it varies, depends on the conference. The best structure is that the conference finishes up for the day. Everybody takes their laptop back to the hotel. They have a shower. They have some dinner. They go to a club downtown for a conference party, which starts around 8 p.m. They have a couple of drinks, and then we go on and we play an hour and a half, you know, maybe two hours on a good day. That's when we tend to get the best reception from audiences. What we have occasionally ended up doing is they're like, oh, we've given you 45 minutes on the main stage at six o'clock right after the keynote, mm -hmm. which means you've got a room full of people. They're like, they've had a beer. They're kind of tired. They've been listening to talks all day. They don't know what they're doing for dinner yet. That's a tougher crowd. So it's always, it's always nicer to, to play to groups of people who've already had a bit of a break and stuff. But yeah. It, it, do you, yeah. Go on. Do you think it could work if you hosted a conference that was actually where the focus was actually the music and then the sessions were the side thing. So you would actually play different sets 
and then in between sets like it wouldn't just be the line breakers but you know get mm. mc front a lot and a few other of these <laughs> these uh, developer music artists and you get them all together and you actually do a concert but then in between the sets instead of just standing there doing nothing being on your phone you'd actually go into you know the different breakouts and do sessions and then you'd come back and the set would be ready for the next for the next gig have you ever seen anything like that do you think something like that could work i don't know it's just a random idea i've seen <laughs> you know various because there are things there's a thing called the audio developer conference which takes place here in london every mm. year and they it's developers working in the audio industry okay. so the talks okay. are serious talks about gnarly problems with fourier transforms and you know real-time signal processing but then they have an open mic session where people come and show off some of the, the weird and wonderful things they're working on. I think the biggest obstacle to something like that is that there are, I think, two dramatically different economies. And, you know, the, the professional developer conference, the kind of event where we normally get invited to play, the vast majority of people who are there, their company has, or their employer has paid for the ticket mm -hmm. because a a conference cost, I, I don't know, maybe this is changing. Like you go to the thing, like say the Glastonbury festival, the tickets to that now cost about three or 400 pounds. Whereas a developer conference that lasts three days, tickets will be, you know, anywhere from 400 up to 1200 pounds for the same kind of length of program, the same number of hours of, of entertainment or, or content, however you want to describe it. But you pay that much for Glastonbury, you expect, expect to see like, you know, Jay-Z and Paul McCartney and. We're talking, you know, world-class acts who you maybe only get one opportunity a year to go and see them. And that's kind of baked into the ticket price. Mm -hmm. And one, I, I have no idea who tech industry equivalent of Jay-Z and Paul McCartney would be, but also, you know, you imagine someone, uh, you have the, first of all, you got to get the venue, the catering, all those details lined up. So you're like, all right, we got this for, a, even for a day, it's going to, you know, involve a certain amount of investment and deposits and. Then you got people going to their boss and going, I want to go to a conference. And the <laughs> boss looks at the lineup and goes, this doesn't look like a conference. This looks like a concert. Yes. You know, how do you, how do you get around that? How do you, you tackle that? Exactly. Mm. Well, not I, that I, I wouldn't be happy to give it a go, but I definitely give it a go with somebody else's money. Yeah. I mean, so. that if you're a startup and you are itching to burn some cash, that could be an idea. I, yeah. I, I was, <laughs> I was thinking of render Atlanta and if you go to render Atlanta's site, you can see that they've got like a very hopping vibe and uh, and they they also talk about you know the fact that they have after parties and and parties in between sessions and stuff yeah i feel like maybe that kind of conference with that kind of vibe it could work to bring in you know musicians yeah. and stuff for that but. I, I think it could work i think it's something that uh you know one of the big challenges we've always found is you say to people we're going to be loud and they're like yeah it'll be fine and then you start sound checking and they're like you need to turn it off uh-huh we're like, we told you we were going to be loud. And they're like, yeah, but we didn't know this loud. And it's like, well, no, like there's a rock band with amplified instruments, <laughs> you know, loud. It means loud. Yes. And, you know, I, I've been booked to play a, a, a after party at a concert, a conference once before where I got two songs in and they're like, you need to turn the music off because one of the rooms wasn't used. So they rented it out to the Bible study group. Mm. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess that's the end of the show then. Thank you for coming, everybody. And you know, in that situation, what do you do? That's funny. Well, have you, have you, how has doing these programming parody songs and the, and music, like, has that affected like your keynotes and the way that you approach developer education? I know you were talking about your workshop 
Like, have you seen it bleed through? Like, how does it affect the way that you do developer education? It's another, it's another option. It's another thing that I can draw on. You know, when I first started doing presentations, I would do static PowerPoint slides and live code. And then I learned a little bit about video production. I figured out a little bit about, you know, how to build more sophisticated animation, how to present those, how to put, you know, bookmarks and control playback in PowerPoint with more precision. And being able to, you know, add music as another element to that is something else that sometimes it's a good way to tell a story. The one kind of standout example in, in all of this, which is, I do not think something that, that could be replicated because it very, very kind of one-off thing is a, a piece of music called Rebase, which I wrote based on the idea of using Git and distributed version control to build up the layers in a musical composition. And so that kind of starts out like, what if your main branch is just the kick drum? Mm -hmm. So your main branch is do, do, do. Yes. And then we're like, okay, so we're going to branch off that. We'll put the snare drum on that, but then we'll switch back to the main branch. So you drop back to just the kick drum and then you put a guitar on it in another branch and you merge these branches together. And so, you know, I created this, I recorded the music and I created a visualization, which is based on the Git Kraken tool, which I use a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of based on the way they render their, their branches and, and things, you know, branching and merging. And, but then there's also actually a Git repository because in order to get the sequence of the commands, right, I scripted the entire history of that repo using placeholder, you know, text files instead of, of audio. So I could get the right branches and merges and things going on. Check that out. That's on. That's up YouTube. So you can you can you can see that on my channel up there. Oh, this is and... this is perfect because this is exactly <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about. Because imagine Git Kraken having yeah. this idea of of creating this of creating music through the mechanics of their software through Rebase, yeah. right? And you've made a video of it. But what if yeah. they took that video? And they made it into like an interactive experience where you could actually use part of the product or you, they make a fake version of the product. And it's like, it's building the music and you do it through like Git rebasing and stuff like that's the type of stuff that I'm talking about. That's pretty sweet. Maybe. I so, suspect the branching and merging in time <laughs> with the beat on a piece of music is some pretty advanced stuff to do on Git for real. Oh, but yeah. We have actually talked about it. You know, I've, I've chatted to some folks about how could you do rebase for real? Mm -hmm. And it would be like, it, you know, the setup would be a, a repo that you were checking in, checking out, branching, merging, and you'd have another watcher process on that folder that every time it saw a new audio file, it's like, right, I need to start playing this at the top of the next loop. Mm -hmm. And then you need another window where you're piping dev audio and capturing that in WAV files. And, and then of course you'd need drums and guitars and basses and vocals and all this kind of stuff set up all around you. So and maybe you, it you could, could be a, a performance piece. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it could, it could, it doesn't have to be like super, well, I think what I'm trying to say is that it can be like a simulation. Like if you imagine that you are trying to create a game-like experience, mm. you can you can make it you can make an approximation so that it, it does feel like you're actually typing in commands and doing stuff. 
but it's not actually running Git behind the yeah. scenes. But it's enough where you can actually teach someone the commands and they're going to be learning the commands. And then you could pair that with actual interactive sandboxes that really do it. There's just, there's so many opportunities. And and, and I think that's what I'm trying to get people excited about. Like there's, if you take the idea of music and you take the idea of learning and then you marry it with programming education, there's like so much stuff that you could probably do there. It might just depend exactly on the right, having the right kind of creative use case for it. So I think the Git Kraken and Rebase is like a perfect example of something that could work with a lot of thought. <laughs> but I wanted to sort of end with with one last question because I don't have you for too much longer. This is my drop an apple segment. It's your chance to drop some knowledge on the audience. Are you ready? Okay. Well, what's what's one thing you wish someone had told you early on about creating content and education for developers? Wow. <laughs> uh, I think the single, the, the two massive shifts in the way that I approach creating presentations, one of them is that I switched from starting with slides to starting with words and scripting all my presentations, like literally writing out almost long form. You know, a, a one hour presentation is about 60,000 characters of content for me because I speak at a thousand characters per minute. And I know because I've measured it. So if I want to write a one hour talk, I'm looking at 10 to 12,000 word essay and, you know, learning how to, how to write things that sound natural when you present them and then use that as the structure for the live presentation. But, you know, I think if somebody had told me it right at the beginning, you need to do it this way, I probably would have ignored them because I hadn't kind of done it the hard way yet and figured out that what was wrong with that. And the other one is if you have a, a talk that is on schedule and you want to do a live demo. If it works, it could have been a video. And if it doesn't work, it should have been a video. <laughs> uh, do not, you know, if you've got 20 minutes to do a demo, then yeah, that's enough time that if something goes wrong, you can probably bring it back. But if you have literally, you know, three, four, five minutes in a one hour talk where you are going to demonstrate something, record that the previous night, edit out the mistakes and the typos and the pauses, drop that in your PowerPoint deck and run that. It can be the night before. It can be that fresh. It can be literally, I did this yesterday in my hotel and now I'm going to tell you what it does. The number of great sessions that I've seen just completely derailed when a five minute live demo didn't work. And they're like, well, now what do I do? Do I, do I debug it? Do I ignore it? Do I go, oh, well, that didn't work. But if it had worked, here's what it would look like. Mm. You know, I don't think that it's cheating. I think if you, if you say that the, you know, the name of the, the game, the point of the exercise is education and communication. Often you can do that with something pre-recorded much better because then the audience has your undivided attention because you know it's going to work. Yeah. So yeah, those two things. Start with the words. Do you use pre-recorded video for all of your live demos if you've only got a couple of minutes? I... If you've got lots of time, cool. Dive in. You know, yeah. that's different. But, well, yeah, yeah, if you got a workshop, that, that could be an option. Yeah. Well, I love that. I hope this, I think, has been super educational for me. And it's just been a really fun conversation. And I hope some people get Join value this. out of it. Where, where can people go to find out more about what you're up to? DylanBT.net. Nice. And I will, I'll include a link in the show notes for that too. LinkedIn.com slash DylanBT. Although leaving me messages on LinkedIn is like leaving me notes in the gym. I'm never going to see them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm on, I'm on Mastodon. I kind of started using that. There's been a real shift. A lot of the people who I used to talk to on Twitter, we have a, a good thing going on Chris Nova's hackyderm.io Mastodon server now. Mm which is still relatively new and 
They that crew have been swamped to their little hobby server, which was in Nova's basement. <laughs> Suddenly had thirty thousand people on it. But yeah, I'm I'm online. If you Google me, I think I'm nine out of the top ten. So perfect. Well, this was super fun, Dylan. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much. Take it easy. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dylan. Here are the things I thought were worth pointing out when it comes to developer marketing and education. Dylan made a small point that's worth zooming in on, which is that audacious projects don't usually start with a master plan. It's usually one tiny little thing. The takeaway there is to allow yourself to experiment, especially when it comes to moonshot ideas like, what if we made a song for developers? Is there a way to do a little experiment and see how it goes? You never know where it might lead. The other reason to do small things first is that the idea is the easy part. As Dylan explained, the hard part is in the recording and playing of the song itself. Then add to that the complexities of trying to create a concert or live session to play it, which adds even more complexity. We touched on how AI isn't going to help you with being a roadie, lugging equipment, managing a set, performing live. But if you've been tracking what's been going on with AI in the music industry lately, I think we'll soon see a reduction in the point cost for recording music and producing something that sounds good enough. For example, today I can sing my own parody lyrics that I wrote and get a trained Drake or Rihanna AI voice to sing them on the original karaoke track. I mean, that's huge! And I suspect we're going to see an explosion of AI cover soon, as it's already beginning to happen. I included a link to MusicFi, which is a musical AI tool you can check out in the show notes. You might be asking, is it worth it? Is it worth experimenting with some kind of musical content for your dev tool? And I'm going to say yes. I mean, we touched on this, but there's a reason brands used jingles and still do. As Dylan said, there's something primal about music. It evokes memories. And I've included a link to Psychology Today where it discusses this phenomenon. And, you know, from a learning science perspective, that makes sense. It reinforces learning. Audio and visual content is always going to be remembered more than text. Dylan brought up a lot of great points when thinking about music in the context of business, especially with developers. You want to avoid something that's going to be cringy, and it's probably going to look either like parodies or humorous lyrics or something that's completely original that feels like it has some soul. I brought up an example in the gaming industry of how Guardians of the Galaxy released an 80s metal album with original songs by the fake band Star-Lord and how they worked that into the game. It was on brand, it was cool, it resonated with someone like me who likes 80s heavy metal. It's not for everyone, but it doesn't need to be. Will we see that someday for a dev tool? I can only hope. I've included a link to an article written by Steve at Ubisoft on how they formed the Star-Lord band. And like I just said, it all started with an idea and a single song. One example Dylan brought up where you can be creative in developer education is in sample applications or demos, such as the band management app he's using in his web development workshop possibly creating fake artwork or even mp3 clips. Another example is when building games, and we'll have a future episode very soon on a company building an onboarding game, but any kind of game-based experience could have original music that is developer-oriented. Another example was actually for a developer tool, Git Kraken, and a way to explain how Git branching works using a musical metaphor. There's so much I think can be explored with music that we've really yet to uncover, so that's pretty exciting. Even though my random idea for a conference with musical sets in between talks might face too many logistical challenges to see the light of day, all is not lost. There are technical conferences with concerts. NDC Oslo is where Dylan and his band The Line Breakers play, 
And I also mentioned Render Atlanta here in the US, which has more of a festival feel with a big concert after the conference. There are a few actionable takeaways I want to leave you with. First, check out Sonic Pi, which lets you create music by learning to code, so it's very accessible to anyone who might be listening if you're not a programmer. Second, think about what parts, if any, of your brand or your product or your materials could have a relation to music. Does it make sense? Is it worth a mini experiment? Third, look around to see if you already have someone on your team who is musically inclined or even a community member who is into music you could collaborate with. After all, developers trust other developers, so it makes sense to work with your community first to avoid making something they won't like. That's it for this week. I'm Kamran Ayub, and I hope you'll join me again next time for Dev Educate. If you'd like to get tips on removing barriers to adoption when scaling your dev tool, check out my blog at kamranayub.com daily. You can also reach out to me directly with questions or comments through my website or on Twitter at Kamran Ayub. I hope you have a lovely day.